Would you join me in Acts chapter number five this morning? Acts chapter number five. Praise the Lord for those songs. You are the one our hearts adore. I hope that that is true of your life. If that is not true, uh, the Lord is the one that your heart wants to adore. You just don't know it yet. He is the one. And uh, pray for the Lord to reveal that to you. Acts chapter number five. Uh, So I think we have preached a couple of messages already within this chapter and just kind of giving you a a preview of what's to come. Uh, We're in a section starting in verse 17 down to 42 uh, that is really one continuously flowing setting, all right? But uh, there's too much in it to do in one message. I can't say next week. Uh, I dare say... Uh, We're probably going to have to spend three weeks, if I had to guess, on verses 17 to 42. Maybe we get verse 27 to 42. I kind of doubt it. There's there's just too much there. So this week, Lord willing, we want to cover verses 17 to 26, 10 verses, plenty for us this morning. Uh, But, so kind of a little warning, those of you watching online, thank you for joining this morning. When we get to the last point today, because of the nature and the transition of that final section, it's just going to kind of finish, all right? The third point It's going to be really abrupt, and you're going to feel like, whoa, that kind of happened quick, and and it was kind of blunt, Uh, and we'll see how the time goes. I may want to finish with giving you an opportunity to get you engaged, and I might even get a little feedback in that last, last section, and that should make more sense when we get there. But the story, again, we're we're, we're going to have to unhitch at the end of today, and Lord willing, pick up next week. So it's just the nature of this setting because it's so big. All right, here's where we're at. There's a new church in Jerusalem. Um, I'm trying to think what to cover and what not to cover. Uh, Peter and John, previously at the beginning of chapter 4, have been arrested. They've been taken in front of the Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin Court, 71 members, Sanhedrin Court, headed up by the high priest. Uh, We're going to go back to that scene today. When they were arrested for preaching about Jesus, they were told, don't ever preach and teach the name of Jesus anymore. And they were released that time, and they went and told all the other Uh, followers of Christ, what the leadership of Israel who had put Christ to death, what they're now saying, and the threats of persecution that's coming. Well, the church didn't change. All they did was took these threats, told them, we will be disobeying you because we're going to keep teaching and preaching about Jesus. And then Christians got together and prayed, and they prayed that the Lord would give them more boldness and even more miracles that led to the great audiences that they were able to preach the gospel to. And so last week, we looked at verses 12 through 17, and we noticed several things in verse 12. We noticed this, their ministry was a miraculous, I mean a powerful, truly miraculous miracle. There were many miracles. They were authentic. They were done among the people. They were frequent. But they were done by the apostles, and they served as signs and indicators that these are the men of God. Follow these men. Not just everyone were doing these miracles. But healings and and demons being cast out of people in the temple, outside of the temple. And it was just growing. And even the unsaved Jews who were fearful to go and commit to that movement, they noticed the Christians meeting over in the temple. But they really appreciated them. They were fearful of that. and They didn't just automatically join. We don't know exactly why. Probably for fear of persecution that is coming. You see it in today's text. But boy, they really appreciated the Christians. They were sincere. And then we noticed that the the church was not only powerful and miraculous in its ministry, and it was valued by others, but 
It was a growing ministry. The Lord literally was adding multitudes of men and women to the church. So here's the idea. Based off of the last part of verse 12 last week, it's as though this section of the temple, the outer courtyard, the most public place in all of Israel, it's like the church that's now numbering probably 20,000 people. They've just kind of taken over this section called Solomon's Portico. And the Jews are still doing their thing, but the church is meeting there because house churches surely can't hold all the people. And I'm not saying that all 20,000 or 25,000 of them met. No, t- no doubt they were rotating in and out of there. And the, and the apostles were no doubt rotating, teaching and preaching and performing miracles. Man, it was just expanding and growing. And that all leads up to verse 17. You had to know this was coming. Look at verse 17. Let's read down to verse 26. But the high priest, so all this good stuff's happening in the church. It's miraculous. It's growing. But the high priest rose up. And here's what we don't know. Is this Caiaphas, the literal high priest appointed by the Roman government over the Jewish nation? Or is this the power behind Caiaphas, his father-in-law, who used to be the high priest named Annas? Doesn't matter. They were kind of one. They worked together. Between the two of them, the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. So it's been a couple of months since we last focused on the Sadducees at the beginning of, verse, at the beginning of chapter 4. So I hope even just saying that, you're already starting, those of you that were here, you're starting to remember some things about the Sadducees, because we'll need to review that in a moment, verse 17 again. All oh, this great things are happening, but the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. This doesn't mean in a moment of jealousy. This doesn't mean they had fits of jealousy. They're absolutely filled. I mean, this is a horrible way to live. You're looking at somebody, if you're looking at me uh, for a moment. You're looking at somebody who in in times past, uh, particularly my later teens and 20s and even the early part of the 30s, uh, really battled with jealousy. I mean, and I'm not, there's others in this room right now, and some watching online. You have battled with different forms of jealousy. This is a horrible way to live. So here's the high priest and the Sadducees filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles. This time it's not Peter and John. It's those two plus the other ten, all of them. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. That's enough. We told these guys not to preach teaching that name. They don't listen. I don't know how long between that threat and this arrest. I don't know how, was it weeks? Was it months? I don't know. However long it was, I'm pretty sure the only reason it lasted that long before the arrest is because all of the miracles were actually helping people and people were esteeming the church highly. But now they've arrested them. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. I take the Bible literally. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And the angel, so they're looking at this angel. He's talking to them. They're, they're listening. He brought them out and said, I get it, go. Now, I don't know about you guys. Some of you may be like me. That's all I need to know. Thanks. We're gone. You'll never see from that. Let's go get our stuff, guys. Let's head out of here. We're going to get hunted down. We better get out of town. Well, no, no, no. Hang on. There's more to this command. The angel says to them, verse 20, go and stand in the temple. 
Hey, time out. Let me get this straight. You freed us. You want us to go right back to the, go stand in, like, like in broad daylight, just stand in the middle. Well, I'm, I'm not done. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. If you're them, what are you thinking right about now? That's the very thing that got us put in prison. Why are you releasing us if all we're going to do is go right back over there? They're just going to get us again. Verse 20. Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And not how I just read it. What an awesome way to live. This is the way to live your life. Verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at, bre- at daybreak. It's like the earliest logical time to get in the temple. That's when they go. You say to go back in the temple, stand there and teach, teach and preach to the people again. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So there's the first like three and a half verses. Meanwhile, now we're getting ready to shift. Because back at the back cave, something's happening. All right, so now we're over where the Sanhedrin, they're getting ready to have their session because they arrested them, put them in jail, and then the next day is going to be the trial. So the middle of verse 21, this is happening kind of simultaneously. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, we know that's the Sadducees, they called together the council. This is the Sanhedrin. All the senate of the people of Israel, all 71. This is a big one. Need everybody present. This one is big. we got to deal with something. They called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now let that sink in. They've called the assembly, and they're sending the officers, go get the prisoners, and bring, they're, they're gone, and you'll hear me read between the lines, because it's not just like they're sitting here twiddling their thumbs between verse you know, 21 and what's going to happen in a moment. There's going to be a gap of time. They're not just saying, hey, how'd your round go the other day? Oh, under par, that's great. Well, we got to wait on the guys to get back with the prisoners. No, I promise you, they're setting the stage. They're prepping the group. Back to verse 21 in the middle. Now when the high priest came and all those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But, off go the officers. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. Verse 23. Now they're back where the Sanhedrin is. Here's their report. We found the prison. Where, where are the guys? Sir, that's what I'm... Where are the... If you'll give me a moment, sir. We found the prison securely locked. Okay. So, sir, what that means, it's not like any trigger. There's no, like, tunnels or walls knocked out. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. And it was all locked perfectly. Apparently, this angel took time to lock everything back. Guards are all standing their post, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And right about then, the high priest's head probably flipped. Verse 24, now when the captain of the temple, this is the number two ranking guy. This is the man who's over the temple police force called the Sagan. 
When the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. I want you to think, what does that word perplexed mean in your mind? They're, they hear this report. They're greatly perplexed about the words, wondering what this would come to. And while that's happening in their mind, verse 25, and someone came and told them, here comes second messenger, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Did you catch the emotions that are going on in the council? Have you caught that? They're filled with jealousy. They're perplexed. They're afraid. And this is where they're at. And what you're going to find is about the opposite of all of those things are happening within the apostles. Let's notice three things this morning. Number one, let's talk for a little bit about the apostles' arrest. The apostles' arrest. Verse number 17. Everything's going great in the church, God's blessing, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So guys, I need to take just a few moments and review. Again, it's been a couple of months, so let's review and let's get, there's going to be just a smattering of some timeless principles that are going to come out of today's passage, and you may look at them like they're not obvious on the first go around, but let's kind of not miss them. Here's one. There is a real Satan. Satan is real. He's a real person. And you can mark it down. Anytime the Lord Jesus Christ is being magnified, he wants to disrupt that. Now, let me keep going. You need to put this in your mind. Here's a biblical principle. Satan is very willing to use religious people to disrupt the worship and service of Christ. You don't get any more religious. These are the religious leaders in the land of Israel. Satan hates Christ being exalted. He will oppose it and disrupt it. And he loves using religious people. The other day I'm reading about Jesus' parable of the tares and the wheat. Y'all remember that? Tares and the wheat. Think about this for a moment. Think about it. Let's learn a lesson that we see played out here. Jesus says this man had a field and he planted wheat. His servants planted wheat. But as it started to grow, all of a sudden they noticed there's these weeds, these tares that look like the real wheat, but they don't have the substance. They're fake and phony. And the servants are confused. And the Lord, the master says, what happened is in the night after the wheat was planted, their enemy, the enemy came and planted the tares among the wheat. And the Lord goes on to show that's how his kingdom is. Listen, his kingdom is like that. What it means is that we're in God's people, where God's people are in his kingdom on earth in this life is being built up. Satan is very willing to put his people who are unsaved in among the saved people. Now think about that. Satan is one person. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's not sovereign. That tells me Satan is willing to take the risk that some of his people that he plants unsaved in among God's people, he's willing to take the risk that they might get saved because it's worth it to him because the value of having my people among God's people is precious. I can use them. He will use religious people. And he has planted his people, his tares among the wheat. I want you to recall with me for a moment. We're talking this morning about the Sadducees. They're the particular group. What? Don't say it out loud. If you were here a couple of months ago, or if you've ever studied them, start making a little list in your head. What do we know about the Sadducees? 
What do they not believe in? Actually, I will get your help. Does anybody remember? What do they, they just don't, they didn't believe in this. No resurrection. Good. But y'all said that kind of loud and all together, be calm. Good. Hey, makes me feel good. We actually been learning. That's awesome. But think about that. We're talking about the people of Israel, God's chosen people. Their religious leaders don't even believe in life after death. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in Jesus' resurrection. They don't believe in anybody's resurrection. Next, they don't believe in angels or demons. Kind of humorous in light of verse 19. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the miraculous. They do not accept the Bible as the Word of God. Only five books. The first five books of the Bible, they accept those as the Word of God. All the rest of what we call the Old Testament, the Bible of their day, they didn't accept all those other books, just the books of Moses. This is important. The, San, the, the Sadducees, in particular, out of that Sanhedrin, remember we said that they sit in a semicircle. The Sadducees dominate the office of the high priest and the chief priest. So out of the 71, most of them are Sadducees. They have the votes. They are the strongest political party. The other that you've heard of are the Pharisees, and you even have these elders. So you, you got some wealthy people in Israel, some landowners, big business guys that are really smart and look to as, as wise. Some of them are invited. you got some Pharisees, and they, they believe a little bit different, and they're kind of usually the enemies of the Sadducees. But let, make no, no doubt about it. The, the, the Sanhedrin is dominated by the Sadducees. In fact, they are appointed by the Roman government, which leads to the fourth thing we need to remember about the Sadducees is important. Since they only believe in this life, there is no next life, they go all in on this life. And so to them, the most important thing is keeping peace and order in Israel. So because the Romans hate disorder, they want peace. And if anything disrupts the status quo, the Romans may bring in their armies and put us down, any kind of rebellion. So they just want it for two reasons. One is to keep the Roman armies out, but the other is to keep their position because they're point, appointed by the Romans. They want to stay on Rome's good side. And the best way is just keep everything as it is. And this new movement is trouble in their minds. I want to read something. It'll take, take me a moment. Uh, it's a lengthy analogy. Uh, one of the guys that I'll read each week is an author named N.T. Wright. And he writes the following. So you're going to have to use your imagination. He actually wrote this last with last, uh, last week's verses, but I remembered it. And I almost put it there, and it didn't make the cut. But I want to read it to you this morning. You ready? You've got to use your imagination. And hopefully as, as you're going and you see the analogy, you'll start making the connection with our text. Because you've got these apostles being arrested by the Sadducees. He writes, imagine you are a manager. You're the manager of a great concert hall or opera house. You there? You're the manager of a great Opera house or concert hall. He writes the Metropolitan in New York, say. Or the Albert Hall in London. You're the manager of the Metropolitan Opera House. He continues. For generations now, this has been the place which concert goers have flocked in their thousands. Week after week, year after year. All the glittering international stars have played and sung here. Every performance is reported in the national press. A grateful public subscribes for whole seasons of concerts all at once. 
Uh, which concert would you like? I want the whole season. I just like about what's, what's price for that? I want to sit right here. I, I want it for the whole season. And you're the manager over this. He continues. And then, you're the manager of this. And then, quite suddenly, in the middle of your busy season, a small, informal group begins to perform. Day after day and night after night. Right outside the main door of the concert hall. It's a motley collection of musicians and they're playing a strange mixture of ancient classical music and rowdy new songs, sometimes putting them together in an unprecedented fashion. This is the weirdest thing. These guys just started playing out here and they're playing some of that and some of that and sometimes it's some of this. And they're right outside your door and you're the manager of the stated, traditional, respectful, elite opera house, he continues. Well, you think people come and people go. Strange things happen. There's probably no harm in it. But then you realize that a lot of the people who ought to be coming into the concert hall are coming to see and hear this little ragtag group of musicians. Crowds gather and stay outside listening to the new music rather than coming inside to hear the advertised program. And soon the leaders of the new band become well known. People are talking about them and writing newspaper articles about them rather than paying attention to the proper stars. Now as manager, you become seriously worried. Perhaps it's time to call the police and have them moved on or even arrested for disturbing the peace. You see the analogy. Right continues. And now we see why it was that things began to escalate in Jerusalem in the days and weeks after Pentecost. It might not have mattered so much if Peter, John, and the rest had met and drawn crowds far away in Galilee or in one of the villages. Later he writes, but Peter and the others were continuing to meet in one of the great porches of the temple. You see the analogy. This new ragtag group that's playing represents the apostles and they're just drawing the crowds and it's pulling away from the temple Jews. If you would, flip over in your Bible. I'm going to have to think. I think one time today, I want you to go over just to Romans. Otherwise, we're staying right here. In Acts 5, go over to Romans 10. And as you're going there, we're talking about the apostles' arrest. And what I want to get across is what that, that little analogy that N.T. Wright used to show us the jealousy that is going on within the, the Sanhedrin. And particularly the Sadducees and the high priest. You kind of feel what's happening. They're, they're losing control. They're losing grip. Things are getting out of hand and it's happening quickly and they're ready to rein it in. Whatever measures are needed. So they're filled with jealousy, and I don't know what your mind goes to when you think about the word jealousy, but now I need to be honest with you, right? So there, there's, there's our thought of jealousy and all of its ugliness, and there is an appropriate time for jealousy, and the word that is used there in full disclosure can carry the idea of zeal, zeal for God. In fact, this is what Paul writes about. Look at Romans chapter 10, look at verse number 1. Read with me. Brothers, Paul writes, hey, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
I'm not going to preach on prayer, but learn there's a lot in that verse about prayer. Paul says his desire is they may be saved, but he doesn't just stop. I have this, I have this want. No, he turns it into prayer. Did you catch it? To God, Paul says, I pray to God for them. But I don't just pray, God, would you bless them? No, God, I'm praying for them specifically. I want, I'm praying they will be saved. That's what I want. I want them... Right after he's just written, knowing they're all not going to be saved. In fact, he just wrote in chapter 9, most Jews are not going to be saved. Doesn't keep him from praying because he knows a remnant will be saved. God, I'm praying for them, and this is what I'm asking. Now verse 2 is the real reason. Look at verse 2. For I bear them, this is the nation of Israel, the Jews, his people. I bear them witness. Let that sink in. Paul says, I'm a witness. I can tell you firsthand what I've seen. I know this about them. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal, but it's a misguided zeal. It's not according to knowledge. Verse 3 is probably the key to this section. It's going to tell the number one main problem, and then it's going to tell the two results of that problem. There's three parts of verse 3. The first section tells the main problem, and then the second and third section are the fallout of that problem. Verse 3, Paul says, here's why it's a misguided zeal. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Being ignorant of, that's the problem, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So here's the problem with the Jews. You say, what, why don't they just trust God, trust Christ, do what the Bible says? Here's their problem. They don't know how righteous God is. In fact, every unsaved person in the room right now and listening online, here's the problem. You do not have a clue how righteous God is, nor do I. But when we don't know how perfect, and the bar is set at perfection, they didn't know that, and here's the result. Because they don't know that perfection is the standard of God to live with him forever in heaven. One thing they do is they try to establish their own righteousness as a way to go to heaven. Why would you try to establish your own righteousness? Because they have no clue how righteous God is. And the other thing they do is they don't submit. In fact, they reject the righteousness that God offers. Here's the righteousness of God. God says, I sent my son because you have no righteousness... He took all your sin on himself, died on the cross. If you'll put your faith and trust in his death to count for you, he will give you all of his righteousness. God says, I'm offering you the righteousness of my son. You give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. And the Jew says, no thanks, we'll establish our own. So they reject the one and positively on the positive side trying to earn the other. Why are y'all doing this? Because they don't know the righteous standard of God. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look this way quickly. I'm almost done with this section. We're going back to Acts 5. Verse 4 is putting forth two ways that people try to go to heaven. The one way is believe in Christ. Just believe in Christ. What he did on the cross is enough. Just trust Christ. The other is, verse 4, Christ is the end of the 
law for righteousness. So some people try to keep laws to be righteous, earn their own righteousness. And then others are like, I, I used to be over there. I used to be on that road trying to earn my way to heaven. I got off that road, and now I'm over here. I'm just receiving the righteousness of God because I believe in him. Here's one thing that's for sure. And God knows the truth of what's going on in our heart and mind. You can say, I'm trusting Christ, but God knows your, your, he knows your heart better than you. He knows the difference between your thoughts and intentions. God knows. Here's the truth. Once a person truly moves into the I'm just believing Christ for righteousness category, then you have left the other. You can never return there. You have left that. Why? Because Christ is the end of the law method of trying to earn righteousness. Remember my pastor saying how that word end is the idea of the end zone. The end zone. Other than Forrest Gump, when you hit the end zone, you don't just keep running through the tunnel and out the other side. Why? Because you've reached the end. You stop there. So I don't know about you guys, but when I was nine years old, I got off of this trying to work and earn, and I started believing Christ, and at that moment, that's it. Yeah, but, but what do you need to do to make sure that you get to heaven? Oh, no, I don't need to do anything. I'm, I'm just, I've stopped all my efforts. I'm at the end zone. Christ is the end of that. Now watch. I bear them record, boy, they're zealous. Write this thought down if you're taking notes. We're back in Acts 5. Paul says the Jews are very zealous. And it's that idea of zeal is tied to their jealousy. And so I'm going to actually split that. I don't know, as you read Romans 10, which section of the Jews do you think that's talking about? We could probably put a lot of weight on the Pharisee side, right? I don't know if you read that and you're like, that's talking about the Pharisees. But I actually think it includes the Sadducees. Write this thought. Chew on it. The Pharisees' zeal centered primarily on keeping religious laws as a way of earning their salvation. That's largely what I just described. The Pharisees, their zeal, Paul says, it's because they don't have knowledge. They have it, though. I bear witness, man. They've got the zeal. And Paul used to be a Pharisee. Their zeal is centered on keeping rules and regulations and laws. Listen to me. Can I use the word moral law? Hey, everybody listen just for a moment. When we talk about the law of God, it had a civil aspect, just rules and regulations of operating a government, but it also had moral laws, and it had ceremonial laws. So my understanding of what Paul is saying in Romans 10 is that the Pharisees centered their zeal on the moral laws. You want to go to heaven, you need to be a good person. Don't do those things and make sure you're keeping all these rules. But now the Sadducees, our group that we're looking at this morning, their zeal was not so much about all the rules and the regulations. Bless their hearts, the Pharisees, they just didn't go by the rules and regulations of Moses. They liked to, to add all the traditions of all the fathers for centuries and centuries, and their list just kept growing and growing. Sadducees are like, yeah, we're not into all that. They didn't really care about morality. What they centered their zeal on, write it down, is in the temple. They're the Levites. 
They're responsible for offering animal sacrifices, and so their zeal centers on the temple itself and therefore themselves. We're the ones who offer the sacrifices. We must keep these sacrifices going. And so the Pharisees, you better be keeping all the rules. The Sadducees, you better be offering sacrifices. And so they see themselves, and they rightly were, the caretakers of the temple. But the problem was they didn't know God. As soon as you've written that, move quickly. Back in Acts 5, verse number 17, why are they so filled with jealousy and resentment? Let me give you four reasons. Do I have time to write that one yet? Write quickly. I apologize. Talk too long about it before I actually got to the end of it and let it get up there. Does that make sense? So the Pharisees, it's about moral rules. The Sadducees seem to be about the ceremonial aspect of law keeping. Put it all together, and the Jews, had they known Christ, they would have known he kept all the rules when we couldn't, and therefore he gives us his righteousness. And they could have told the Sadducees, because Christ is the perfect son of God, his death on the cross means we don't have to offer any more animal sacrifices. All those sacrifices were only shadows pointing to the true sacrifice of Christ. Had they known Christ and what was being offered, both of them could have stopped at the end zone of trusting Christ. But now, write this down. Why are the Sadducees so, so jealous in verse 17? Number one, they're angry and resentful and jealous. This is, this is simple. They've just been directly disobeyed. We plainly told you guys, and that's how the trial's going to start next week, Lord willing. We plainly told you don't to teach and preach, not to teach and preach in the name of Jesus anymore, and you've directly disobeyed us. So they're ticked off. They're zealous and they're jealous. Number two, and write as fast as you can because I'm going to keep moving. They're also jealous because the church has such a powerful ministry. And let's just be honest, the Sadducees, their ministry has no power whatsoever. It has no power of God on it. The power of God is long left if it was ever there among the ministry of the Sadducees. So they lack the power of God. The apostles have the power of God. Of course, they're jealous. But number three... The Sadducees are jealous and angry and resentful because they stood to lose their position. They stood to lose their authority. They stood to lose their very livelihood if people end up following Christianity. While if they understand that Jesus' death was truly the Lamb of God and there's no more reason to offer any more animal sacrifices, well, here we are, the tribe of Levi, and our whole sustenance, our living, like food on the table depends on the other 11 tribes offering sacrifices to God. We, we hope this never takes off. And so their authority, if this ever takes off, they're going to look at the apostles as the authority instead of us. They really don't want this. It would make the temple less important if people are starting to look at their bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit individually rather than a man-made building in Jerusalem. And then lastly, if y'all had time to write that, because the next one is going to be on its own. Why are they so zealous? And jealous and angry and resentful. Now hear it. The actions of the church and everything that they keep doing is making it more and more obvious that what they say is true. Jesus really is alive. There really is power in his name. And if those two things are true, he's alive and he's supplying the power for all these miracles and these healings. 
And it's not just in these apostles. It's him living through them. Well, then now the Sadducees look like the heretics that they are because they are the ones who had Christ put to death. And so they're angry. You're making us look like heretics because we put him to death. And sure enough, everything about the church was just screaming, Jesus is alive. There's power in the name of Jesus, and there is. So just before we go to our second point this morning, which would be much shorter, let me say it this way. Again, I have struggled with this, and perhaps you haven't. Usually when we use the word jealousy, we're talking about romantic jealousy. Jealousy is a very powerful, I mean a very powerful emotion. Probably one of the strongest. Some of you have been, you have felt it, and some of you have been on the negative side of it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's dominating. Je- jealousy will make a person see things that aren't even real. Jealousy will make people see things that are innocent and even good and wholesome as a threat. That's bad. That's a threat. So before we leave this point, I want every one of us to check our heart. So that we are not the religious people that Satan ends up trying to use to attack religious people. So what do we need to do? I want to invite you. Strive to stay so in love with God. So in love with God and so empty of self and pride. That's a struggle. Strive to stay so in love with God and empty of self. That when you hear, now I'm not talking about romantic jealousy. I'm talking about religious, spiritual, ministerial, ecclesiastical, church jealousy. We must stay so in love with God and empty of ourselves that when we hear reports that God is working powerfully among others, that we hear that as an encouragement and not as a threat and something to be resentful about because it's easy to have the other. Can I use a hypothetical? Would you do this with me? Hypothetical. There's a lever. You have the authority. You got to go with me. You got to do it in your mind. There is a lever. If you pull the lever, lever, you have the ability. It's up to you. To, it will be pulled or not. It depends on you. If you pull this lever, then a person who has hurt you in your past will be used mightily by God to advance the kingdom of Christ. Some of you now have a name attached to the theoretical. Here's the question. Because there's a question. There is a lever, and you have the ability to pull that lever. If you do, someone who has hurt you in your past will be used mightily by God to greatly advance the cause of Christ. Did you hear that? That's good news. Wait, now who's going to? Would you pull the lever? Would you pull it right now? Just pull the lever. Good things will happen. The kingdom of Christ will be advanced and God will be working mightily. That's great. I don't want them to be the one that does it. Pride is our constant enemy. Constant enemy. I might have missed a word or two. I did it from memory. Warren Wearsby says, hear it. Much 
envy can be disguised as defending the truth. Much envy can be disguised as defending, hey, did you hear what God's really blessing over there? Yeah, well, they don't dress right. Well, I don't know how they dress. I'm just saying God's way. Well, their music's not godly. Are they using the right translation? What? Envy can be disguised as defending the truth. Number two. The apostles' release and obedience. We see this in verse 19 to 21. Look at verse 19 after you've written that. The apostles' release and their obedience. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Isn't that just so real simple? Um, Timeless principle coming up. You're not going to write it. You're just going to hear it. Ivor Powell says of these verses, quote, Every Christian worker should find encouragement in these scriptures. You think, why? Quote, If God be for us, who can be against us? Say it again. What do we learn in verses 19 and 20? Here's something we learn. Every Christian worker should find encouragement in these verses because here's what we learn. If God be for us, who can be against us? I read this. This is such a simple thought, but maybe one person needs to hear it. This illustrates that when God wants to, here's a key, when it is God's will, He can deliver us, He can deliver you from any trial, any hardship, any difficulty, and it's not a hard thing for Him. God, I mean, God, God can do it immediately. He can just deliver you. You're like, oh, no, this is really, really bad. God can just change it in a heartbeat. This was a job for one angel. You go, get them out. Yes, Lord. Not a hard thing. Sometimes it is God's will to deliver us from hardship and trial and persecution and difficulty. But sometimes it isn't. He could do it anytime he wants. So the other day I'm, I'm reading Matthew 17. I'm in Matthew. I told you that last week. Matthew 17, Mount of Transfiguration. Catch it. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John. Listen, did you catch that? We we learned something. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John. What does that tell you about John? He took with him Peter and James and his brother John. Let me ask you all a quick question. Who are the two most well-known apostles of the twelve? Peter and John. I think if we could go back in time to this time, you would get the impression, because where we're at now, none of them have written any scriptures. They're living it. They're going to write it. I believe if we could go back in time, what we would find is everybody would know Peter's kind of the... First among equals, and you'd probably get the, the impression James is number two and his brother John. You're like, well, what happened? Listen, Acts chapter 12 is coming. 
Peter's going to be put in prison and Peter's going to get released. But before that, James was put in prison and James had his head cut off. Sometimes God's will is to deliver and sometimes it isn't his will. We're going to get to chapter 16 and Paul and Silas are going to be in prison for one night in Philippi. And God's going to use their Roman citizenship to get them out of prison. Just one night. But later on, by the end of the book, Paul's going to be in the prison in Caesarea for two years. God could have got him out anytime he wanted. Why are you letting Paul waste his life, God? Why are you letting Paul waste his life? He could be out doing more and more. He, there could have been five, six, seven missionary journeys. And then he got to Rome and he was also in prison under house arrest. Like, we don't always know what God's will. All I know is this principle. Whenever he wants, he can deliver you, and it is not a hard thing. He sent an angel. Write it down. Hebrews 1 verse 14 describes angels as ministering spirits sent by God to serve those who inherit salvation. They're ministering spirits. They're servant spirits. God, and by the way, I'm, I've never really done an exhaustive study of, of angels or angelology in the Bible. I find most people have a lot more in their mind about angels than the Bible actually says. But a lot of us have less in our mind about angels than the Bible says. So somewhere in the middle is probably would be the accurate thing. I am not saying that angels were merely and only created to serve Christians and believers in God and followers of God. But that's like one of the main things they do. In this life, they're more powerful than we are. But the Bible's clear. In the next life, we who trust Christ, we are the sons and daughters of God. And so sons and daughters are, out, are going to outrank even these angels. But again, this was a job for one. I don't know how he did it. They can enter, angels can, are real beings. They can enter this physical world and they can open prison doors and close them back and they can lead people out. I don't know how they got past the guards. I'm assuming they probably put some kind of trance on these guards. I, I don't think the guards stopped guarding. I think they just maybe went into some kind of trance. Apparently maybe the night shift and then the morning guys came in. Everything good? Yep. Yep. Sign right here. All right. Everybody in there? Yep. No trouble. I do find it humorous that of all the ways God could have delivered the apostles, he chose to do it by using a being that the Sadducees says doesn't exist. I like that. God's got a sense of humor. He really does. He invented humor. And he displays it there. Would you look quickly at verse number 20? Verse 20. Would you look at the last phrase? What do you notice about the word life? It's capitalized. Everybody see that? Isn't that that's weird. Can I offer something to you? So here the angel brings them out. Here's your command. Go. Stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Go speak all the words of this life. It seems that that, that phrase, this life, was an early designation for what we've been calling the church. It's going to be called the way. It seems like, and that's why it's capitalized, it seems like he's using that as a title a designation for this movement. What's it called? Y'all know what we call it today, right? It's called Christianity. That phrase didn't exist. That word didn't exist yet. Apparently, it was called this life. Now, go preach to them all the words of this life that we have. And it's not just about this eternal life that we have. It's 
Go give them all the words of not just our eternal life, yes, but it's, it's this relationship that we have with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. They need to know, people need to know all the words of this life that we have. You boys go back and I find it interesting that angels are not told to go do the declaring. They often in the book of Acts tell God's people to go do the declaring. That's just one of God's ways. As one famous writer says, there is no plan B. If you're a Christian... And you're thinking, boy, I got somebody in my life I'd really love them to get saved. I wish somebody would tell them about the Lord and they'd get saved. Hello? There's no plan B. I wish they'd just pop them on the middle of the head in the middle of the night or some angel would come tell them. No. You tell them. You boys, get out. All right, we're out. Go. Yeah, you don't have to tell us twice. No, go. Stand in the temple. Broad daylight, right in the temple. Yes, go stand in the temple and then speak all the words. And then the next verse says, after they took a vote to see which ones wanted to do it, which one thought the angel was crazy. No, it doesn't say that. They all went. They all went. Words matter. Go speak to them all the words of this life. Would you write this thought? The gospel contains words of life which must first be spoken and understood. By the time I finish this thought, some of you, quite a few of you, should realize this thought should sound very familiar. The gospel contains Words of life that must first be spoken and understood by the person spoken to before it can be agreed with and ultimately trusted. You're writing that? Say it again. The gospel has the words of life. Our words matter. Content matters. What we say, the details of what we say matters, ladies and gentlemen. It is not just like, hey, gather together and give a feel-good message. As long as we're sincere, it's okay. No, actually, our words and our content matters. We don't just get up and say anything that makes people feel good. Sometimes we have to say things that make people not feel good to get to the feel good. Raise your hand if you see where this note came from. Y'all hear it again. The gospel has to be spoken before it can be understood. Because you got to understand the gospel before you can agree with the gospel. And you got to understand it and agree with the gospel before you can trust the gospel. Raise your hand if this sounds familiar to something you've ever studied. What am I describing? Say it. The exchange. If you haven't made plans to be here in September, the third or fourth weekend of September, you need to come because that's how you get saved. People hear the gospel. They have to understand the content of it. And then you got to agree with God about the content of it. And then you've ultimately like, well, then I'm saved. Nope. Now you got to trust the words of life. Quick thought. Here's another principle that I learned from this text. It's not in your handout. It's just, here's something I learned. But by the way, this has layers, and this is 
This is not going to be a, well, I better not even go down there. Let me just say it this way. Ah, yeah, this is like that piece of gum that gets bigger when you chew it instead of smaller. Because Jesus is the only way to heaven, even persecution is not a sufficient reason to abstain from evangelizing. Yeah, but we're going to be persecuted. Do it. I'm not standing here this morning and saying there are never times that God doesn't override and say, right now is not the time. It is wisdom to wait for a different setting. I'm thinking where there's an arena and Paul wants to run into that arena and straighten the Ephesians out because they want to kill Paul and he wants to run out there. But thankfully, the people around Paul would not let him run into the riot. Because he was going to go out there, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Now's not the time. They're going to kill you. And yet, here they are. And you got to really be in tune. Our default mode is we're going to give the gospel because there is no other way. And the gospel contains the words of life and a relationship with God. Look at verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. A timeless principle is about to come up, and I do want you to write this one. The command of verse 21 is, you got to get this, it's risky. Barclay writes the following. He's talking, he, Barclay writes how the, the apostles were men of principle, and there's just one question. Like, we got to obey God. we got to obey God. That's, that's, that's all there is to it. But he words a couple of sentences. He writes this. They never asked, is this course of action safe? That's a nice little sentence. Jeff's up there talking. What did he just say? Is there a note yet? What? What? Is it time? When is? No. Listen. They never asked, is this course of action safe? They asked, is this what God wants me to do? That's it. It's just simple. It's not about safe. So write this down. I believe this is a timeless principle. There will be times when obeying God is risky. And may not make sense. There will be times when obeying God is risky and may not make sense. But obey God anyway. Why? Because being faithful, even amid difficulty, is often when we actually bring the most glory to God and glory to Christ. And that's when we actually have the biggest impact on other people. Yes, there's times it's risky. Yes, sometimes it, that just doesn't make sense. God says to do this, or I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me to do this. That makes absolutely no sense. That's not safe. That surely can't be the will of God. I'm, I'm picturing John Hutchison standing here preaching to us when he represented frontline missions. Missionaries who go to the world's hardest to reach places. Most difficult, most dangerous places. It's not about safe. I hope... Maybe of all the things we're looking at, I hope that you'll take that thought and go home and just let that one marinate. Sometimes God's commands are risky, and obeying the Lord, it doesn't make sense. I believe if there were any Jews on the fence who saw the day before, saw the apostles get arrested, and now they're released, and sees them the next day preaching again. If they were on the fence, I wonder if, man, now you just, you just validated the message. You just drove it deep. You believe in it that much. And that's when we really glorify God. 
I started letting my mind go for a moment. I thought, and by the way, I'm not going to do. I'm going to fight what I normally would want to do. I'd want to come up with a little list and try to maybe even think through. How could that come out in our lives? Instead, my mind went into, is that note even true? And I thought more of Bible examples. There was this man named Abraham, and God promised Abraham he was going to have a son. The problem was Abraham's wife was barren. Doesn't matter. She's barren. And they kept getting older. But God never backed off his promise. Finally, Abraham has the son through Sarah, his wife. And it was a miracle from God. But then the boy gets into his later teenage years. And God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. Like to kill him like an animal. And what does Abraham do? He takes him up on the mountain. And he is ready and literally like about to drop the knife into the son. And God stops his hand. That's a time. You talk about risky. That's risky. The son was supposed to be the nation, the promised nation. And I'm getting ready to kill him, but you, you told me to do it. You talk about not making sense. That's not making sense. I'm picturing the children of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt, following God. Fire by night, cloud by day. Militarily doesn't make much sense. We're leading us right down to the Red Sea. Here comes Pharaoh's army. We're toast. We're trapped. We're done. Nope, you just follow God. And then Moses is like, now watch God work. And y'all know the rest of that story, right? Turn seas into highways. One of the best lines of that song we sang recently. They keep moving. They come to Jericho. What's the strategy? Oh, we're going to Here's what we're doing. We're all going to be real quiet and don't say a word for seven days. Okay? Save your voice. We're going to march around the city. All right? We're looking for the opening. Now we're just marching around the city. Okay, what do we do the next day? We're going to march again. Day three, march again. We're going to do this seven days. Okay, and then on day seven, we're going to march around seven times. And then then we're going to shout real big. (laughs) And what's going to happen? God says those giant walls are going to fall, and then we're going to go up and get the victory. That didn't make any sense. What's another one thought of? Gideon. Gideon, during the book of Judges, is supposed to go lead Israel to throw off, was it the Midianites? I'm rusty on my numbers. Seems like it's a hundred and some thousand of them. And Gideon musters up all the, all the, all the armies of Israel he can get. And it's, I think, like 32,000 or something like that. And God's like, nah, I've got to thin out your side. No, 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 no. We're the ones with the 32. They got the 100 and something. Yeah, you got way too many. And so he, he whittles the number down to 10,000. This makes no sense. And then, you still got too many. And so God whittles it down to 300. 300,000? No, no, 300 actual men. Well, I'm sure God's going to do some time travel and send them some tanks and machine guns. For just, no, here's your weapons. You're going to get some pitchers. Got some pitchers. Pull the water out. Uh, you will get a, a bugle. You get a horn and some torches. And your voice, your vo- vocal cords. That's not a good strategy. That makes no sense. There was this widow, and it was a time of famine. She was down to the last little bit of meal for her and her son. She was going to make one last little cake for herself. And, that. and along come the man of God. And Elijah says, hold up, man, before you make that for you guys, make me a cake. Feed the man of God. That makes no sense. Best move she ever did. 
Jesus is in the wilderness, hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's being tempted by Satan. I mean, tempted in a way you've never been tempted. Whose bright idea was this? He's following the Spirit. He literally comes up out of being baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does, lead him out into the wilderness to not eat and to be tempted by Satan. Sometimes it's risky and sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. But you just go ahead and obey God because that's when he gets the most glory. Now listen, you've got to check your life right now. Is there an area of your life where you've been hesitating, been holding back because... I know that's what God says, and I know that's what the Holy Spirit's telling me to do, but that's, that's so risky. Man, that's costly. That makes sense. The question isn't, is it risky? Is it safe? The question is, is that what God wants us to do? Then you just do it, and it'll be the right thing. Number three, notice the Sanhedrin's embarrassment. The Sanhedrin's embarrassment. Verse 21 in the middle, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So here's the thing. Here's the scene. All 71 members of Sanhedrin are present. I mean, this is a big one, guys. This is a big. The, whole, the very fabric of Judaism is being threatened. And the high priest has called everybody, all hands on deck. Now, guys... I'm not a politician, and I'm not, I'm not a good political type person, but I've learned this through the years. The shrewd politicians don't just call meetings and leave things to chance. They prep it. They know where they stand before they call for a vote. So I'm reading between the lines, but I think I'm pretty safe. Reading everything I've read about the high priest. The Sanhedrin is assembled. They send the guys to go get the prisoners. Don't you know the high priest was prepping all the Sanhedrin so that he gets the votes that he needs? Don't leave it to chance. And so I'm picturing, be it Annas or Caiaphas, whoever it is, is making this grave. Go get the criminals. Yes, sir. Now, man, in a minute, God has put you men where you're at you have a tremendous responsibility and an opportunity. We don't believe in the book of Esther, but we do learn something from it. Could it be that for such a time as this, God has put you right where you are to deal with this situation, situation that is such a threat to our nation and the worship of God among the people of Israel? And so soon as these criminals arrive, you will find, as I, that they need to be punished and exterminated. Men, are you with me? You got them? Are they here? Little does he know that he's about to be shocked when they walk in. I hope the poor little messenger boy didn't use the word miracle. <laughs> Sir, it's a miracle. I do not want to hear that word. Don't ever say that again. Okay. All we're saying is everything was secure and the guards were there and we opened it up and they're gone. We don't know what happened. Okay, yeah. You say it again, you're going to be in prison. And now this egg on their face. You've called this meeting and you don't even have these criminals. Look at verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Perplexed. What? 
Throw some synonyms in your mind. They're greatly perplexed. We've lost our, our criminals, our prisoners. Perplexed. I wrote these words. They're confused. But it's more than they're confused. They're troubled. Listen, can I offer this? I think this is what's going on in their mind. They are perplexed. How did this happen? Think. No, really. How did this happen? How did they, there's a way they got out. How did this happen? Second thought. However it happened, what does that mean? What does that imply? Their mind is not going to what actually happened. Remember, they don't believe in angels. That didn't enter their thought. How did this happen? And what does that say? And what's going to become of it all? What's going to happen now? They're perplexed. Now, since they don't believe in angels, they're only thinking of human earthly explanations. Put yourself in their shoes. You, you don't believe in the miraculous. In your mind, you think you're God's people. You don't see them. The last thing they think is, oh, I know what happened. Those apostles are God's men. We're the enemies of God, and God has freed them. I bet that's, what, that's not what they're thinking. But they don't believe in angels, and they're really stumped. So all they're left to do is come up with earthly explanations, which y'all can figure it out. Y'all know what they were thinking. text doesn't say, but I don't think it has to. There's corruption. How far does it go? Is it in this room? How many of these 71? It isn't you, is it? No, Pop. I promise it better not be you. Who is it? We got, we got some moles in this group. Those guards got bribed. What in the world? This is like the worst thing ever. This is so embarrassing. And then they start thinking, where is it going? We're never going to see these guys again. Sir, what if we actually do hear of them again and they've gone somewhere else and they're preaching there and they're out of our jurisdiction? <sighs> this is horrible. And then they get... Worse news. You're like, what could be worse than they lost their prisoner? I don't know. Again, I can't say for sure. I would like to go back and interview them. Hey, quick question. More troubling to you. Verse 23, 25. Watch one. I think they'd go 25. 23 is embarrassing. 25 is infuriating. You see verse 25? And someone came and told them, look. You know what look means? They're not far away. Poor guy, I feel for this guy. Again, I'm reading between the lines. Y'all got to give me, I'm, this is not in the Bible. Sir, son, I don't know if you can see, we're trying to deal with a situation. We lost the, well, sir, I just wanted, son, right now, we're, we're busy. It can wait. We got to find these prisoners. I was going to tell you about the prisoners, where they are. You know where they are? Yes, sir. Well, then speak up, boy. What are you waiting on? Oh, well, they're standing in the temple. They're hiding in the... No, 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 sir. Where are they? Well, actually, you'll just... See, you can't hear them, but you look right... You see the guy waving his arm and talking? That, that's your Peter guy again. They're, and he's ticked. To never see them again would have been embarrassing, but for them to come right next door and still be preaching, now, man, that's of all the unmitigated gall. So I told you we'd be blunt and I finished. So would you write these things down? 
And we're going to have to unhitch and pick up here next week. This passage displays several contrasts. Hopefully you caught them. Number one, the council was jealous. They're jealous. The apostles are secure and loving and confident. Total different. Council eat up with resentment, anxiety. They're jealous, bitter. Out there's the apostles, man. They're just serving. Secure. They know who they are. They know whose they are. They're just loving people and healing people and leading them to Christ and showing them how to have eternal life. Very different. Number two, the council was afraid. I'm not going to be able to touch on verse 26 this morning, but they're afraid the people are going to stone them. Not just the church are going to have their heads. Even the unsaved Jews who are not yet following them, they are esteeming the church highly and esteeming the apostles. You can imagine, hey, what are you doing to them? Hey. And so when they came and arrested them, this time, the second time, you had to know it was like, would, would you men mind coming and following us today, please? Thanks. When we're having a session, if you don't mind. And the apostles, to their credit, sure, we'll go with you. No fight. They just yielded. The council's afraid. The apostles were courageous. Number three, the council's perplexed, troubled, confused. The apostles, their own mission. They're just carrying out the mission, moving forward. Not on your handout, but the, 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 the council is wondering and they're perplexed and wondering where's this going to go. It never dawned on them that what Jesus said about this mustard seed. Jesus says his kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's full grown, it's the biggest tree in the whole garden. It never occurred, I promise you in their mind, they never thought, I bet I know what's going to happen. This movement is going to end up dwarfing Judaism, Christianity, I'll tell you what's going to happen. This Jesus Christ and his followers, this is going to be the biggest religious movement in the history of the world, and we're going to move way down and never to cross their mind. And then if you'd write this one down, the council is busy trying to protect themselves and their authority and their livelihood while the apostles are just out risking their lives for Christ. Contrast abounds. And we'll see that continue into next week. So my last thought, and all you have are a bunch of blanks. I don't have any more notes for you on the screen other than one last word. So as you're writing that, the council is protecting themselves and their own power. The apostles, man, they're just risking their very lives for Christ, doing it obediently. And we're going to find that they are glad to do this. They see it as a great privilege. So guys, here's my question for you this morning. I want you to really think. I want you to put a word to it, or two, or three. Write it down. What motivated the apostles to continue to evangelize amid such persecution? They were told they're going to be punished, and sure enough, they get arrested, but now they get released. And they end up back preaching in the temple. And as we start next week, as we saw already, verse 26, they got rearrested. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a fairy tale. This is not just made up, a nice little story. This is real people. This is real lives. They get one shot at life, and now they're going to get rearrested. And they don't know how it all ends up. By the way, ultimately, in this life, they end up dying. 
11 out of the 12 end up dying. And the one who doesn't, they tried to kill him, but it didn't work. I want you to put a, if you're watching online, like, write down. Like, really think. Well, if it's a Wednesday night, I'd give you three minutes. I don't have three minutes. Like, you got, you got lines in front of you. In your heart of hearts, how many things can you think of that motivated the apostles to keep evangelizing and preaching and teaching the gospel in spite, right in the middle of persecution, like persecution, we're going to keep doing it. Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody do that? Who has one you'd like to offer? What do you think might have motivated them? The resurrection of Christ. They're filled by the Spirit. Feel free to write these down. Love. Love motivated them. Anything else? They know they have the truth. They know they have the truth. Personal relationship with Christ. It was real. It ain't fake and phony. I mean, it's real. What motivates people to keep going amid hard times? When they love the Lord, when they know Him, when they've had real experiences. Did you write these down? Could I offer to you? I don't know that this was in their heart, but it wouldn't be wrong. I'm going to use that ugly word. Could it be they felt a duty? It's our duty. We've been called to this. Is duty a motivation for Christians? It's not the highest one. But before you quit, it's your duty. If that's the one you need, grab it. I'm thinking of this. Again, my wording. You guys have already worded some of it. Watch. I think they're motivated by a deep knowledge of and devotion to Christ. We know Him and we're devoted to Him. A burden. Would you write that one down? A burden for lost people. They're going to hell if we don't tell them. The world will go to hell if we don't tell them. We're the ones that he had. Follow him. He taught us the truth. His Holy Spirit continues. There's a reason he's working through us these miracles. He's giving it to us. Burden for the lost. Dare I say this one? And Jeff of 15 years ago would not like Jeff of today putting this on the list. Could it be that they are motivated by reward hey guys we may die we may die but jesus said if you suffer for righteousness sake great is our reward in heaven it'll be all right it'll be worth it over there love you hope that's the biggest brother victor said love is motivating them knowing that they're not alone and again as someone worded here's my wording of that the authenticity the authenticity And the deep impact of their experience with Christ. I mean, the authenticity. You say, Jeff, why do you think they ran right back there knowing more persecution is coming? You get one shot at life. This has to be a huge bit. What would motivate someone? I believe these guys, when they are on the water and there's a storm and they literally think they're going to die. And they wake up Jesus. And Jesus at that night... And these are expert fishermen. This was a horrible storm. When he walks on the bow of that boat and he said, Peace, be still, and boom. 
And the boat stops. You have little faith. And he goes back to the back of the boat. And those guys go, Who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? You don't forget that. Three of these boys went up on a Mount of Transfiguration and his face did shine and his clothes became white. And they're like, this ain't a game. Why are you boys still going over there in the face of persecution? Because if you've ever seen what we saw, oh, it's real. And they saw him resurrected after he called it. Oh, it's real. Here's my question as we close. How many of these motivations are in you? I believe, I'm going to offer this. I believe they were motivated because at this point, it's only been a few weeks, maybe months, since they've interacted with Christ. And I think at this point, it's important, I think at this point, their interaction with Christ is still sustaining them here. It hadn't been that long. But these guys are going to be persecuted and risk it for decades until they're finally put to death. Decades. And so I know human beings. I know me. We are not unchangeable. We are not immutable. God is immutable. We're very immutable. We will change within five seconds. And you talk about over decades. I believe at this point they are sustained by the recent activity, personal activity with Christ. But what keeps them going I dare say it was a sustained, daily, genuine, authentic walk with the Lord. When that is getting a little fuzzy, they still know him every day. And they have real God encounters. These guys never quit. Today there were some people that didn't come to church because it was raining this morning. Will you quit? Will I quit? The other day I'm reading in Psalms, and I'm reading David, and I forget the wording, but he's praying, God, don't let me quit on you when I get old. That's my prayer request. God, don't let Jeff Bartlett be a quitter. Don't let me be a quitter. Let it be so real and authentic that it never leaves. And no matter what comes, I can't quit. Are you going to quit? you going to quit in America? We... We don't know any kind of persecution. This is how you live. Go, stand, speak. What time do they open? Daybreak. All right, let's go. That's how you live. Let's stand. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, I confess. As of Thursday night, I didn't see anything in the text. I wasn't even hardly challenged. But you answered my prayers in my world. So thank you for challenging me by the example of these men. Lord, would you help us all to be rebuked if we need be, to be encouraged, to be instructed, to be emboldened. But Lord, the last dynamic is so true. We, left to ourselves, God, we just sputter out. Would you give us real, genuine God encounters that sustain us? 
when we're not on the emotional high or the spiritual high of a service or a small group or a conference or a great song that is new or a passage that's jumping off the page and we can't read it and digest it fast enough. Lord, I pray that you will just sustain us with your presence. God, may we not be surprised when persecution comes. Lord, may we not be the people who is causing the persecution. Father, may you rid us of prideful jealousy, ministerial, spiritual, ecclesiastical jealousy that exists among us. God, may you put our pride to death. And then, Father, where we're holding back and where we're being a little hesitant to obey you because it's risky and costly and it just doesn't make sense to us, Lord, give us great faith and obedience. And follow the example we've seen before us this morning because you're worthy of it. And we want you to be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.